0: Greetings and indeed, salutations. Welcome to the Silence is Golden Podcast, your home for discussion, analysis, and general geekery about silent film. I'm Brett Odom.
1: And I'm Bryce Odom.
0: And this week we're joined by a special guest host, Max George, co-host of the Screen Kings podcast. Say hello, Max.
2: Hello. That was my Halloween hello, if you didn't catch that. (laughs)
0: <laughs> very spooky uh would expect no less from uh one of the top horror movie podcasts uh out there nope. at, least, at least in our opinion uh no thank you uh la- at least once upon a time you were the highest rated is based out of utah i hope that's still true uh the uh, uh cer- certainly a feather for your cap and we are glad to have you here this week to join us to talk about Nosferatu, the classic 1922 silent film. Uh, and Max, actually, I was on your podcast uh, some some time ago, and we talked about this in the context of the birth of the classic Universal Monster films.
2: Yeah, that was a great episode. We kind of dived into The Vampire, uh, Wolfman, and I believe Creature from Black Lagoon. Uh, make a it Frankenstein. It's, it's Frankenstein. been
0: a while. <laughs> I believe it's Frankenstein, but yeah, we uh, so yeah, so that was uh, that was that was fun. But we're so we're gonna we're gonna deep dive now into just one particular film here. Like I said, Nosferatu, uh, the first great vampire film, uh, and one of the early pioneers of the horror and monster genres in cinema. Uh, you know, like just uh, just like we have previously, we're going to start today by uh, doing a little bit of context here, Bryce is going to provide us a walkthrough of, of uh, what happens in the film, and then- That's what you will pay me for. <laughs> we're paying you?
1: Wait, no. You're not? Oh. Well, I guess I'm here anyway. All
0: right. All right. Well, so, and then we'll, we're, we're gonna, then we'll walk through what we think about the film as a whole. Uh, so like I said, Nosferatu uh, was uh, produced in 1922- It was released by Prana Films and directed by F.W. Morneau. We're going to do our best to actually pronounce the director correctly this time, unlike last week when we managed to slaughter his name throughout. This time, the slaughtering, I promise you, is just because we don't speak German. (laughs) Uh, uh, the The movie starred Max Schreck as the iconic title character. Count. which makes it really appropriate that we got Max on today
2: though.
0: <sighs> Max, are you secretly Max Shrek all um, these all these 100 years later?
2: You finally discovered my deepest darkest secret. Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, there is a, there is in fa- there you know part of the legacy of this film. This is this is one of the great iconic vampires. Uh, Max Shrek's portrayal of the vampire pops up in many ways, including a 1990, I believe it was in the 1990s, a film starring uh, a film that the basic premise of it was that to make Nosferatu, they had Count Orlok, but in truth, Count Orlok was an actual vampire. And uh, I believe
1: he was played by William Dafoe in that movie.
0: He was played by William Dafoe in that movie. The movie is ridiculous, but it's just... <laughs> I, it is d- just one of the signs of how this iconic creature has lived on. Uh, also, if you like what they do in the shadows, I believe one of the vampires, and that is based on Count Orlock. The, uh, the very first big bad in Buffy is based on Count Orlok's uh, appearance. The Master uh, was his name. So this is an iconic portrayal of an iconic monster. Interestingly, though... <laughs> This was not a giant success for Prana Films. Uh, this is, in fact, the only film that Prana Films released. Uh, it never it went bankrupt not long after. Uh, part of that was that it was it was critically acc- it was very popular, but it was not necessarily. The rate, the raging success that Prana had hoped for, but more importantly, the film almost immediately fell under lawsuit for copyright infringement uh, because, as Bryce will touch on, Nosferatu is uh, is dr- based on Dracula. This is the, this is a adaptation of the Dracula story with all the names changed.
1: And uh, they just thought all- thought the Stokers State wouldn't notice. <laughs>
0: Well, that's, uh, in fact, actually, that's an interesting thing. There are two schools of thought about this. Uh, one is that they, the names were changed to avoid uh, copyright accusations from the Stoker estate. Uh, if that was the case, they did fail. Stoker estate won, uh, uh, won the case against them, and that's one of the reasons Prana goes under. Uh, there is another school of thought, and there, I think, is some legitimacy to this. Uh, this was a German film made for German audiences. Uh, they changed the name to German names because that's what German audiences would have been comfortable with. Like you know, we we tend to you you know you do adaptations of a story. You tend to have, want names that, that people can pronounce because it's their own language. And so they made a they made German uh, more German names for the characters. So there is a, there is a, perhaps a practical reason for this as well as a legal reason. Uh, but like I said, they uh, they did not succeed. The Stoker estate would go, this is Dracula! <laughs> and the courts went, yeah, this is Dracula. Uh, and they ordered the films destroyed. Not merely financial rep- uh, reparations, but they ordered the prints of the film destroyed. And that could have easily been the end of Nosferatu. But a few of the films did survive this culling uh, ordered by the courts. And... In many ways, Nosferatu therefore became the first great cult film. It uh, it got it uh, got passed around and smuggled out. Eventually, made its way to the United States. Uh, so it survived by literal ha- by passing between hands.
1: So wait, um, are you so are you telling me that the United States penchant for pirating movies began in the 1920s? I mean, yes. <laughs>
2: the United States uh, have been pirating stuff for a lot longer than the 1920s
1: that's Ooh. I said it
0: <laughs> we've been pirating stuff since the days of John Paul Jones <laughs>
1: there we go hey and uh, just a quick just bringing up John Paul Jones just a quick shout out just this past week the 240, I believe it was 246th birthday of the United States Navy
2: nice
1: yeah. well,
0: congratulations uh,
1: pirate- sorry for the tangent <laughs>
0: Uh wonderful tangent. Uh as John Paul Jones uh like like so many early, like so many early uh sailors could be but can be considered a pirate or a or a uh, great sailor, depending on which country you're talking about. But uh we were certainly pirates when it came to Nosferatu. Uh, and the film the film as a whole continued to have influence past them. So as as it did survive, it was it was while itself is maybe not a great example of German Expressionism, uh, which was very prominent in this uh, in this period of early German silent films, it was nonetheless strongly influenced, and we see that influence carry forward in both the horror and film noir genres, both of which draw a lot from that movement as a whole, and which Nosferatu is a part of the heritage of. This makes amazing use of shadow. Uh, Which is very film noir. It also uh, establishes a lot of early tropes of monster and horror uh, films. So this really is the start of a whole host of trends in cinema uh, for the next 30-40 years. It all begins with this iconic portrayal of a vampire from Transylvania. so let's, let's shift gears then and talk about that vampire from Transylvania, and how, how he chose to terrify this German town. Uh, so, Bryce, why don't you tell us about that?
1: All right. Well, um, as Brett was pointing out, the movie is largely based on Dracula. So if you have seen particularly the Bela Lugosi version of Dracula in the Universal Monster films, which was based on the authorized stage play... Um, then the a lot of the plot of this movie will seem the the plot and pacing of the movie will seem very familiar. Um, but I'm I'm gonna uh, but one of the things that Nosferatu does really well is it uses title cards very effectively to help generate uh, the mood of the movie the the just dark tones of the movie. And I mean, it starts with this. I'm gonna quote the movie here. It's the very opening title card, literally title card, not just the captions, but it has the phrase Nosferatu on it. Nosferatu, does this word, excuse me, does not this word sound like the call of the death bird at midnight? You dare not say it since the pictures of life will fade into dark shadows. Ghostly dreams will rise from your heart and feed on your blood. That's how the movie starts. So you are, um, especially, you know, a 1920s audience, you are freaked out already. Are you all freaked out?
2: (laughs) Well, yeah, I think it's important to remember that this this is set in the 1920s. And, you know, while that was very poetic and, you know, very gothic, back in the 1920s, it probably was quite evil to a lot of people um we have to remember that this movie is framed and designed in a sense of a different time you know where the slasher movie what didn't exist gore didn't exist demon movies didn't exist this really kind of was revolutionary in that regard yeah yeah and uh
1: and no that's absolutely right And, and and i as i'm not a fan of the slasher and Uh, slasher and gore movies i i really like this much more subtle get under your skin type of strategy um now brett did mention they basically took the plot of dracula and changed all the names um for those y'all at home who don't know who those names are the big ones are count dracula is now count orlock jonathan harker is now hutter uh mina harker is now ellen and uh the the three suitors of Lucy are all kind of turned into uh, a guy named Harding um, there is a Renfield character whose name is knock uh and uh professor uh, where's I don't have his name on here professor uh I think it was Burnow, uh but there's also a uh uh Van Helsing character as well. So all the characters there just have different names. Um, And it starts very similar to the novel Dracula. Harker, our Harker character, uh, Hutter, is hired to go out to uh, to the wilds of Eastern Europe and uh, to this old abandoned castle uh, to finish a real estate deal. And he gets there. The villagers find out what he's doing. And guess what? They try and talk him out of it. They can't. They eventually drop him off on a uh, corner on the middle of a dirt road. And this crazy fast uh, carriage comes up. And this freaky looking uh, cab driver tells him to get in. And it goes crazy fast again all the way uh, to the castle. And then you realize, hey, but Count Orlock, who's greeting him, looks suspiciously like that carriage driver. So, if you've ever seen an adaptation of Dracula, that will all sound familiar. Um, but as the movie goes forward, and again, I don't want to go over the plot too depth, because too much in depth. Because again, if you've seen Dracula, you really know this plot already. Um, but Count Orlock torments and sucks the blood of Hutter uh, before eventually finally leaving and coming to uh, Hutter's town. In fact, he bought uh, the decrepit abandoned house right across the street from Hutter. Um, And while he's tormenting Hutter, he feels this connection to Ellen. And he abandons Hutter in the ruined castle to try and go uh, to this new place in part to feast, in part to find, uh, he's kind of drawn there by this woman. Uh, and Hunter does escape himself he eventually, uh, he manages to escape, uh, he does not die um, at the hands of Orlok, he manages to escape and he gets back. As he's journeying back, the, sh- the famous scene of Dracula, or in this case Count Orlok, is on the ship and just killing everyone on the ship is happening. And we'll talk more about this, but the creepiest scene, uh, and I don't know what y'all think about this. Y'all, uh, tell me if y- y'all agree with this assessment or not. The greatest, creepiest shot of the entire movie happens on the boat. The boat is, uh, the sailors start to die. They think of a plague. Um, and I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, but... The last two, the captain and the first mate, start to realize, wait, this doesn't make sense. We think there's something in the ship. And the first mate goes down and starts to beat apart the boxes of dirt that are Count Orlock's coffin. And Orlock throws, without moving his arms, throws open his coffin, and then he rises out of the coffin without bending his knees or back. And I think it's the single creepiest scene in the entire movie. What do y'all think about that? Well, I think it's
0: definitely an effect. I think it's definitely really effective and it does have this, it's a great way and they do many different things to give him the surreal quality, but that's definitely one of them. Um, I w- uh, the, other, the other candidate I would have for it is the hall scene in the castle itself when he's being held captive. Another yeah, time I have to agree there, there. it's another, another moment where they make him they really play on on the, on the
1: otherworldliness of his movements uh, And that's something they do really well particularly as you get closer and closer to the end of the movie um, mm-hmm. because uh, well I'll kick down in just a moment um, because eventually of course Orlock lands. And I would say one of the biggest differences, there, there's two major differences, I would say, in Nosferatu from Dracula. Uh, one is that Nosferatu, uh, Count Orlock, unlike Dracula is very, Dracula has gone to a new feasting ground, but Dracula is not killing everyone. He is choosing his targets. Count Orlock is killing everybody. He is a plague by unto himself. And everyone thinks a plagues are happening in the communities he goes in. There's a reference to the fact that on his way to the boat, the communities got hit by a plague. The boat thinks they got hit by a plague. The town he ends up in thinks they get hit by a plague. And there's this wonderful shot of them just showing coffin after coffin after coffin being led down the street. Because Orlok is just feasting away in this town. So he is a lot more aggressive in his feeding than Dracula actually is in the book or in, in, or in the movie adaptation. Um, and then Elle, there, there's this great book, which of course, you know, it's a bit Dussek's uh, mock me. But Hutter finds a book and it ends up making, he holds on to it and makes it eventually to his wife, Ellen. Uh, but it's this book uh that is entitled Of Vampires, Terrible Ghosts, Magic, and the Seven Deadly Sins. So you know, in 1920s Germany, no scarier title could probably come up with. Um, but Ellen finds a passage in there that says that if you if a good maiden can tempt, can will willingly give herself to the vampire, she can keep him drinking her blood long enough to that he'll ignore the rooster crow. And this is the other major difference. Uh, Dracula, in the book, in the Bela Lugosi adaptation, doesn't actually die because of sunlight. Um, That is uh, actually a creation of Nosferatu. So the sun comes up and uh, as he's drinking the blood of Ellen and he tries to escape and he gets hit by the sun and he disappears into a cloud of smoke. Um, And you think, oh, yay, it's over. The maiden has won, except she dies too. Um, and the heart, and that's the, and that's the end, is the tragedy. Yes, they've defeated the uh, the vampire, but it's at this terrible cost. Um, but yeah, that, that's pretty much the, the plot of it, and, uh, of it. And we can now transition to any other uh, into our kind of general analysis and discussion of it. Um, I'd like to go ahead and start with something we just mentioned a second ago when we we're talking about the boat, um, and that's framing. That's something that uh, Morna, uh, that uh, the director, if I don't look at it, I will mispronounce it, Murno, uh, F.W. Murno does really well throughout the movie, especially for Orlok. Orlok is always emphasized and highlighted and his, uh, his already cra- uh, crazy, creepy makeup is heightened by how he is framed in these scenes.
0: Yeah, and that, that's part of this legacy of German expressionism that's going on in the cinema. Um, Max, you and I were talking about the scene in the hallway, this really effective scene and the set is all designed to kind of center on, to kind of highlight and center Orlock in it. Um, uh, and it gives it both center scared, but it also, and especially when it's used around Orlock, it really emphasizes, I think, that otherworldliness. And uh, Max, you and I found that scene very, but uh, we both agreed that that scene was very creepy. Do you, uh, How did that, why did you find that effective?
2: Honestly, I think outside of the bounds of the framing um, and kind of the mise-en-scene, which is just a fancy way to say how the set was established, um, I I think Nosferatu is so intimidating just because the practical effects for the time still hold up to now. Um, The way they portrayed Nosferatu, the makeup, the physicality of it all, the way he moved, all of this kind of summed together in a really exquisite horror moment. And I think this scene in the hallway really is the pinnacle of the movie where we see all of this effort finally kind of come to fruition. Yeah, there's
0: just, yeah, it's just this. They do so well in u- in using all of the tools at their disposal to, hi- uh, to highlight, again, what I keep calling the otherworldliness of Orlok. Uh, you know, it's like, in, in that scene in the hallway, uh when when Hutter opens the door and sees him. He's at the distance into this long hallway and the light all you, you see him only because of like this this one bit of light in the hall. Uh and it just it is creepy. It's like, oh my God, what is that? Uh it's not a jump scare. Jump the you know jump scares don't exist yet <laughs> in cinema. But it's just like it's unsettling just seeing this lone, very creepy figure. And then he shuts the door and he kind of, he shuts the door as if to lock it and backs away from it. And then the door opens on its own. And eventually Orlok himself walks slowly in through the door, clearly hunting his
1: prey. And that that doorway provides yet another frame. Uh, another way of, of focusing your eyesight on him. You can't take your eyes off of him because mm. of how they shot it. And they do that on the boat. There's a wonderful shot on the boat um, where he gets up on the top deck and you're looking at him from out of the hole. Um, where, again, you can't help but see his other role, you, know, you, you can't. He becomes center stage again.
2: Yeah, it, it's not a jump scare like we've talked about, but it is kind of a revelation. We finally get a full kind of example of what Count Orlock is, and it's otherworldly. It's unsettling, and we can kind of dive into you know some symbology. I don't know if that's a real word or not, uh, but the <laughs> the, uh, the symbols behind what Count Orlock kind of represents, and this revelation of this pious man seeing that can really be interpreted in a lot of different ways
0: yeah absolutely uh you know that yeah it's it's like and bryce you mentioned is like you know, he he does not he's not uh there's not oh people think he's the plague i mean he is kind of the plague like he himself is bringing it and they do that they you know they they use the symbolism of of the various creatures he can turn into mm-hmm. to show that, of course, a wolf early on. But mostly, like he does, I don't believe there's ever a moment where he turns into a bat, which is the iconic creature. It's he
1: turns into rat. rat. It's a little unclear whether or not he turns into the rats themselves or he's just the rats are following him. I, I I
0: take it as that he can transform into rats. That's that I thought was the implications of because it happened several times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they bite. The rats do bite one of the sailors. So I, I, I presume the rats are Oraloc. But, like, yeah, it's like rats, ever, we all associate with plague. Uh, rats carry plague. And so he is, he is the plague itself.
1: And, of course, you know, this is 1922. The world just went through an influenza plague. <laughs>
2: um,
1: yeah. You know, the Spanish flu had just ravaged the U.S. and Europe. Um, in the aftermath of World War I. So it was a um, very um, recent
2: fear to play on. Mm-hmm. That's true. Uh, and I mean, you can even take a step back and look at Count Orlock as a vampire itself. Um, contagion, plague, uh, and even within that kind of a Christian motif as well. You know, the devil, uh, mm-hmm. losing your faith, the, the purity being lost you know you're you're allowing this incubus into your home to take what is most pure uh, the vampire is symbolic for so much uh, and I think this movie really allows the viewer to interpret that from whatever frame, there's that word again uh, frame of reference that they're viewing
0: yeah and you know you mentioned the purity thing I, w- I want to leapfrog from that uh, we have we have Hutter's uh, bride, his wife, uh, Ellen, in here, and she is she is from the very first time you see her portrayed as kind of this symbol of purity and goodness. Like he brings her flowers, and her response is, "Oh, why would you kill such beautiful flowers?" You know, it's like so. This is a very symbol. And then perhaps. It's, it's not clear. This is one of the things, I think this is in fact one of the weaknesses of the movie. It's not clear why she seems to have a psychic connection to Hutter and possibly Orlok. But she does uh, from the moment shenanigans start to happen in Transylvania. Uh, you know, she can sense something is amiss. She sleepwalks. Uh, you know, she reacts to the pain and the torment that Hutter is going through. There. So it's like, but she is she's this representation of purity, uh, but like Bryce said, like you know the cost of defeating the demon, of course, is her. Uh, so that that purity had to be sacrificed, uh, which is an interest, which is an interesting moral to the story. <laughs> uh, that purity couldn't can't really be maintained in the face of something like this. It. Uh, goodness has to be sacrificed
1: and yet also without goodness you can't win either so you know you have to to both sacrifice it but you also have to have it
2: i think i would push back a little bit it's it's not so much a loss of purity but it's an act of growing up um you Mm -hmm. know purity is this innocent delicate flower we all want to preserve and again spiritual tradition heavily pushes that we should preserve but As an act of growing up to really face the darkness of life we do have to kind of leave that innocence behind we have to sacrifice our purity for the greater good um and i think this movie speaks to that as do many movies from here on out uh, especially a lot of horror oftentimes in the slasher movies or the demonic movies really the turning point in the plot is when our main characters realize that you know sometimes you have to embrace the darkness to find our light um uh, yeah
0: no, I think that's a really good point uh, you know we were uh, and we're kind of, we kind of touched that touched on this here uh, you know some we've talked a lot about how a lot of the film really does hold up uh, you know we wouldn't it wouldn't have had all this influence if it didn't hold up but I think you can definitely also see some some early, some of the early weaknesses of cinema poking through in this film from such I think principally like, well that what's going on there why is she wait why is this seemingly normal woman having these apparently very psychic links going on this all seems odd uh but there's no good explanation for what's going on there i mean and you know you're always going to leave room for interpretation with that kind of stuff but it is just kind of this out of the blue thing uh you know Orlock does supernatural things. Orlock seems to operate through shadow and through creatures and and uh, demonic powers. But here's this human woman, and she's has these things. Uh, so I do. Th- I think I think it is a. I think it's actually a weakness in the film is this little is kind of the B plots. It doesn't do a great job of telling of establishing what's going on in these other places hutter and orlock and that whole story it does quite well uh but what the further you get away from orlock in the movie the less the less clear that they are in their storytelling i don't, don't know if anyone else thinks that as well
1: i i i would agree with that to some extent but i also think The flip side that is, is because we can see, even here in 1922, just how ambitious movies are starting to try and be. Um, You know, one of the other movies we're going... I don't remember what order this uh, movie we're going to be looking at, but one of our movies we're going to look at is another German film that tries to be even more ambitious than this one, and that's Metropolis. Um, So film is starting to lean into the possibility of, for lack of a better word, spectacle. Um, and I don't mean that as in a, in a flippant way. I just mean that in terms of lar- it's something on a larger scale.
0: Yeah. And, you know, the, the, it is ambitious. Uh, the sets are gorgeous. Like, these are huge castle sets.
2: Mm. Uh, mm
0: they they look like ruins it's like the, the ru- castle Orlock's castle is this ruin that the whole place is just radiates abandonment and darkness it's very good it's a very good uh very good set design very good uh and they're big sets there which is are we to, uh a lot of the play a lot of the movie still feels a little bit like play like the dynamics of being on a stage we talked about last week when we were talking about, or last time we were talking about that of Timken and we we're talking about how a lot of very modern cinematography seems, uh, is there or modern seeming cinematography. We don't quite get that here. There's a lot of distant shots. There's a lot of, uh, I feel it feels a little theatrical sometimes and how they frame many mul- actors together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, uh, but it's it's overall, uh, but yeah, it's, you can definitely see the things start starting to peak in. You know, start the the ambition of the storytelling is really kicking in here. Uh, and this is at a time where German film was arguably much superior to Hollywood. So this is all stuff that's going to shortly be transmitted across the sea to the United States and Hollywood. Uh, Max, do you have any highlights you want to discuss? We talked obviously about the, you know, what we thought was the creepiest thing, but what, what was, what, uh, what was your big takeaway or moment where you went, ah, yes, this is doing it for me?
2: Um, I, I honestly think it was that that hallway scene. Uh, the first time I saw Nosferatu, it, now that scene has been replicated over and over and over. So when I finally watched this, it was kind of like. You know, finding the inspiration for all these other movies that you love and there is just this deep appreciation um, for the foundation of a lot of the horror movies that I talk about on my show. Uh, Furthermore, though, I think what we've already discussed, kind of this overcoming innocence to, to tackle the darkness is a really beautiful thing that a lot of us need to hear nowadays Uh, Another testament to the longevity of Nosferatu is its message is still as powerful today as it was in 1922. Um, And then, you know, just kind of the superficial stuff that we've talked about. The set is incredible. The actors are beautiful. You know, the acting itself, while it's a silent film, you can still tell that these individuals were giving it their all. They were on the Mm -hmm. forefront of cinema. Um, and, And that passion and that fire reads through even in a silent film. Uh, I know a lot of people in the horror community who don't really give silent film a chance, and they're missing out. It has some great uh, great horror.
0: Yeah, I, uh, you know, another th- another thing that you see a lot in horror movies played on later is that use of the shadows and silhouettes of Warlock. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it's just playing on his silhouette, and sometimes it's the implication that the shadow is him, that he's acting through his shadows.
1: Oh, the, the whole... Yeah, the whole last scene, uh, or uh, the whole lead up to the last scene in the movie, of him going into Ellen's room, you never see the Orlock himself walking up the stairs. You see his shadow going up the stairs. You see his shadow at the door, walking, uh, going in. You see his hand, or the shadow of his hand, gripping her. Um, it's not until he actually is really drinking her blood do you actually see Orlock. Um, and, which is a really, it's a really well done effect and you see that, and that idea of course comes from the novel to some extent, but you see that those imagery, that imagery really, you know, talking about the longevity the influence of this movie, when um, Coppola did his adaptation of Dracula in the 90s, they played on that heavily with Gary, Col- uh, with Gary Oldman as, uh, as Dracula. Throughout that movie,
0: and and and, and Max, you 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 touched on this a bit there, and so did you there, Bryce. Uh, you know this, we've and we've already, and I think I touched on it earlier. It's like this film really does just have this wide-reaching influence down through the years, uh, both in how it's shot, the iconic look of the character, and just a lot of early horror tropes start here. Uh, you know, they're going to get passed down and and built upon through the golden age of Hollywood. But this really is where a lot of it started. Our, uh, you know, this and Dr. the cabinet of Dr. Caligari both came out of German Expressionism. And they really established a lot of the basic aesthetics of horror in
2: cinema. Yeah, I mean, horror cinema owes a lot to both of these movies and to German Expressionism as a whole. And I think as horror fans, we need to kind of remember that as we watch these modern movies. Where do the roots come from? By appreciating the past, we can appreciate the present a lot more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: And that's, and you know, that's the great thing about going back to watch silent films broadly is you get to see so much quality. Some there is so much quality in silent film, and you get to see the what you know. uh, This is where it all began. uh and uh where it came from and you know most directly obviously nostratu has its influence in later productions of dracula the stage production the uh you know stage production the the film in 1931 with bella lugosi and uh and the other and the aesthetics of the universal monster films they 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 grow from here but it's uh you know this is where it started I do, uh, I do want to comment on one thing, one thing we have in Minjong, but this is a trope. This is a horror movie trope because it's everywhere. I know it comes from the book, but this, there's always that person. who's like, oh, what a lovely cabin in the woods. We'll have such great fun. And Hutter is that person in this story, the single densest German you have ever seen. It's like, oh, what a lovely lovely castle. The mosquitoes are terrible, though. They left
1: two spots on my neck.
2: Hey, if I saw this, like, gothic castle, Brett, you know me a little bit better than Bryce. You know I'd be like, oh, yeah, this is where we're vacationing every summer in this spooky (laughs) cathedral castle. That's my jam. So I feel attacked, but also seen. Uh (laughs) Oh, um... Also,
1: I, I believe—correct me if I'm wrong on this—isn't the fa- isn't vampire fangs caused by, or isn't that a creation of the makeup work in Nosferatu? I don't believe that was a thing, and actually before Nosferatu.
2: It depends on which vampire lore you're coming from. Yeah. Um, a lot of kind of the scientific research behind where vampire lore originates from is actually rabies, which you know you're foaming at your right. mouth. You have that very carnivorous desire. So, I think you could say that the fangs is developed from Nosferatu, but I think there's also an argument, you know, to say that it's a little bit more primal, more animalistic with the fangs. Yeah. Uh, and then also you have the whole onslaught of, you know, early Christian uh, medieval times, the Renaissance with this very kind of tropey devil with the sharp pointed teeth and the horns and that kind of playing into right. the, to the vampire lore as well. So, yeah, uh, the
0: defi- I, I believe the, def- visu- the visual prominence of the fangs uh, definitely does get its origins here
2: yeah but yeah I can see that for sure
0: yeah it's uh it become- it certainly becomes i believe something that uh we focus on when we think vampire uh rather than just oh, they like blood it's ah, but they drink it out of the little bit out of the little bindy straws in their face
1: <laughs> Things is bindi straws that's exactly what they are
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well that's uh uh, you know, we have uh, we have definitely spoken now a good bit here. Uh, does anyone have any final comments about Nosferatu?
1: Watch Nosferatu. It's a really good movie.
2: <laughs> Indeed.
0: Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I will second and third that there. Uh, this this has been absolutely a uh, great film to watch an absolutely great discussion to have with both of you. Uh, Let's see here. Um, Max, where can people find you?
2: Um, Anywhere you listen to podcasts, really. Uh, Like you said at the beginning of the show, I co-host the Scream Kings podcast. We are most active on the Twitter, at Scream Kings pod. Uh, But if you'd like to listen to the show, you can head over to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, uh turn on the radio you might hear us there if you summon a Ouija board I will be the one who will be talking to you through the planchette Uh, really speak our name three times and we will be summoned
0: Uh, well I I I will have I'm gonna have to go get a Ouija board then uh uh and Bryce where Bryce where, where can people find you
1: well, uh, uh, they, uh, as a published author, um, I have my own website, jbryceodom.com. Uh, also, though, I also run a YouTube channel, which is jbryceodom uh, uh, underscore author. And you can also find me on Facebook at, uh, at Odom and Instagram at jbrice, uh, Odom underscore author. So I'm all across the social media. Come find me. Also, buy my books.
0: <laughs> uh and you can find me wherever you find uh silences Gold. uh silences golden on uh, the social medias our twitter is silence gold pod uh and our email if you have any questions or re- want to reach out to us is silences golden podcast at gmail.com uh well this is this has been another great episode we will see you next time in two weeks when we uh talk about metropolis Max, thanks so much for joining us. Bryce, thank you for being with me, as always. And we will be in your podcast feeds again in two weeks. Have a great night.
2: Have a great one, everyone. Stay spooky.